Hi, I'm Andrew Dubber, I'm Director of MTF Labs, and this is the MTF Podcast. You'll be familiar by now, I guess, that one of the main interests that brings this amazing global MTF community together is the intersection of science and art. But it's not just that it's cool or interesting to bridge those worlds in new ways, although of course it is that too. It's also becoming central to our understanding of how the grand challenges of our world, not the least of which involves our stewardship of the earth, its ecosystems and diverse species, can be urgently addressed. With that in mind, over the course of this podcast, we've explored the built environment, new ways of mapping the world, new ways of understanding biological life forms, and new knowledge through the perspective gained with the view from space. But perhaps one of the richest seams of seldom explored potential for the kinds of new knowledge we need to ensure our ongoing existence is to be found in something that there is more of than pretty much anything else in this world. Ocean. And someone who doesn't just bridge, but blends oceanic science and art is MTF-er Robertina Shebunich. Robertina is an internationally awarded artist whose work revolves around the biological, chemical, political and cultural realities of aquatic environments and explores humankind's impact on other species and on the rights of non-human entities. Robertina, it's really great to have you on the MTF podcast. Of course, you were involved in MTF Aveiro in Portugal last year, but I remember we first met at MTF Central in Ljubljana back in 2015. Do you want to start by telling us a little about how you connected with MTF in the first place? It's true. It's like it's quite some while ago that uh, we met and uh, all this started to happen. So like, I was at that time working on a performance together with a colleague. It's an audiovisual performance together with colleague Alex Hink Zargon. And we have been doing different experimental stages, I would say, with ferrofluidic um, structures, which we went into showing the micro and macro situations real time with the sonic interpretation of it also. And actually, Michal Ziegler organized Irzu Festival at that time, also in Ljubljana. And he was the one who connected with Michaela and with you and with the Music Tech Festival and with the organizing Music Tech Lab also in Ljubljana. And he invited me and Alish to um, he encourage us to be part of it. And he was very happy to introduce us also to Michaela, Malas, and you. And, uh, this was somehow how we started to meet then, you know, and then when you spend time together physically at the event, we exchange a lot of thoughts also, especially with Michaela, we had like quite nice conversation flow. Um, yeah, and since then I'm following what is happening and I think it's great to have this kind of ways how to to follow how the communities are developing also. Because mm. Iazu was a, kind of a long-running Slovenian sound art festival. Had you done a lot with Miha at that before? Yeah, like uh, with uh, Iazu, I was collaborating in different, with different hats, I would say, because I was also for some while um, in the beginning of 2010, 2012, and so on, working at Ljudmila Multimedia Lab in Ljubljana as a producer. So with Miha, we organized together events also many times. So it wasn't only me as an artist, but also me as an active uh, member of the 
bigger organization structures also sometimes collaborating with Michal instead of that. And it was great because his festival, like I said, it was very boutique. You know, it was small, but it was very interesting. The people he managed to bring to Slovenia also. And I have to say at that time, I didn't travel yet so much. And for me, it was a great opportunity to really get to, to know different branches of experimental improvisation and sound art in general. So it was kind of like really good platform to be involved with. Mm. And uh, you say sound art. I mean, you're an artist and you're a researcher, but uh, it's mostly underwater uh, related things, isn't it? I mean, it's sound from beneath the sea. It's sound from uh, aquatic animals. Why? Why is that interesting? Yeah, it's like um, it started very organically. You know, I was actually at the 2012 and I stopped working as a producer and started to be much more involved as an artist and independent working in different projects. I was invited to take part in a Triennale of Contemporary Art in Turkey in Izmir. And there actually they invited me specific with the idea of combining the knowledge of uh, local scientists and local artists. So I was in the same way working as a, you know, mediator between these two different communities. And at the same time, I was also developing some conceptual frame for a new research, which I was like looking into it, you know, and then spending lots of time in Izmir Bay at the marine station there. And, you know, first it was uh, more on the shores and then also sometime with boats and so on. I started to be more interested what is happening. And uh, sound-wise, you know, like I have to say that first time I put the hydrophone into the water, it was like uh, getting just immersed into something which I didn't heard before. And this effect is still even though that I work on this now since several years, it's still very, very engaging and it's very interesting because, you know, it's a sound of something which we don't hear on the daily basis. It's quite foreign. It's sometimes quite hard to understand what it is, you know, which animal it is. You know, it's full of different kind of structures and also physicality of the sound by itself in the water. It's like having absolutely different shape, if I call it like that, you know, because it travels wider, it's stronger. It's it's a very different medium, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. I've got a couple of hydrophones myself. Uh, hydrophones, if you haven't come across the term, if you're listening, is, is basically a microphone that you can stick in the water. But one of the things that you notice the first time you use a hydrophone is when you record sound underwater, mostly what you hear is people. You hear motors, you hear boats, you hear, you know, those sorts of effects. How big a problem is that? Is that having a particular effect or should I just try and kind of block that out? No, but there is, that's a very good question because actually this is something which I came across in the beginnings a lot, you know, like I was trying to block out all the human imprint. And then after some while I realized like more than I will try to delete and clean that sound from the boats and ships and everything else what is around I realized that you know then I would be just like showing half of the soundscape which is kind of us being there and our presence the noisy presence is this something which I really started to point out on the end of the day and then from this I started to develop body work 
of the sound artwork, which is called Aquatocene, where I'm kind of like mixing together like bioacoustics and acoustics, bioacoustics in the sense of like all these uh, different sounds and songs from fish and shrimps and everything, which is like all the creatures of the sea, I would say. And then also as humans, you know, from the boats and similar. And it happens many times that I go out on full trip to record. And most what I get is like us humans, you know, like with different technological imprints being there. Is aquatocene your word or is there a literature of that? Aquatocene is actually my word, you know, it's like uh, I was like playing around with uh, Anthropocene you know, like defining how the human is actually imprinting everything. And in my conceptual frame about my work, I started to develop also, I call it like aquaformations, you know, it's like the way how we are like changing the water from inside out. Then in this kind of play of words. You mean like terraforming, but underwater? Yes, exactly. Okay, I'm with you. This is happening a lot, you know, and uh, this is something I think in next few years the topic will be much stronger because I see already the pace. I remember when I started to work on this in 2012 and, you know, when I started to do compositions in 2016 and so on, there was not such a big interest into this. You know, people have been always asking me, like, why this? You know, it's like, it sounds very esoterical or, you know, like there have been different ideas, you know, because... If we don't know it, we apply something to it towards it and not always is something, but it's actually there. I was quite persistent with this because I really wanted to bring this out. And in my work, I try to combine also to invite also scientists, you know, which they're working on a daily basis with this, to also give them the platform which we artists have and share it with them because I think it's very important to have this emergence of different knowledge coming together. I think it's quite, uh, yeah. Sure. But you, you are an artist in a very scientific domain. To what extent are you a scientist? Well, you know, I always joke with scientists that I'm a scientist till they <laughs> let me go. <laughs> no, but yeah, it's a, it's a tricky question because, yes, I'm actually trained as an artist. I'm, I finished uh, sculpturing and but since 10 years, I'm working very in-depth and very interest, I'm very interested into marine, I'm specifically interested into marine science, you know. So, of course, marine science has like many different uh, layers, you know, and it's not only one or another, you know. Oceanography is like, it's combination of biology and so on. So there is also very... What I see is like uh, people working in this kind of scientific field, they used to have like different combinations of people working together. So I'm then not so dis- such a disturbance then anymore, I would say, as an artist. But uh, I would say that I'm very interested in it. You know, I like, I try not to be just fascinated with it, but understand also the context and then work with that further. Okay. Well, as someone who may not be a marine biologist but works near them, I have what might be a really stupid question. Do fish have ears? I would say first, Andrew, there is no stupid questions. Okay. <laughs> That's very that. kind of you. <laughs> but... No, no, but it's like a very important question, actually, because we are not aware how very loud and talkative the underwater world is. In the sense of, like, yes, 
dolphins, whales, you know, you know, everything what is big and quite has some. Yeah, those are mammals. So, I mean, I, I know enough about marine biology to know that those aren't fish. So, so my question stands, do fish have it? Because I know, I know whales have songs and I know dolphins, you know, chatter and, and all the rest of it. I'm not aware of fish talking, if that's the right word. Do, do they? It's and, the and, right word. Yeah. 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 They like to talk and they're very chatty, especially like smaller fish, like clownfish and so on. They're very talkative, you know, they really exchange lots of information between each other when they communicate and how much I was reading and listening into it and also talking with different marine scientists, especially the one working on this kind of topic of bioacoustics. They all say that, you know, they also like, they have their own social structures and this, they debate them also, how they're happening. So it's quite interesting to observe that. Yeah, definitely they have ears and what is the annoying thing with us humans being so loud there with boats and ships and all this is like that they cannot close these ears, you know? So Well, no, can we? We don't, we have eyelids, but uh, not earlids. Exactly. Do these different species communicate with each other? I mean, the the dolphins and whales example, do dolphins talk to whales or are they completely oblivious or, or unaware of? of what each other is saying? I would say like this. First of all, you know, there is there should be more extended research about this, but how much I know and how much I came across and how much I spoke with different marine biologists is definitely there have been occasions that they have been interactions between different uh, species. And this interspecies communication, it's happening there because, you know, it's either there is like the same danger or... They go for the same hunt, you know, like to, towards the smaller fishes and squalls of fish and so on. So I do believe that they also exchange somehow between not only, because they're a very interesting thing. Like I came across of an excellent scientist um, who is working with uh, whales and she's like observing how, when and how they are as families moving from one part to another and why this is happening, you know. And of course, there is different parameters because there is never only one why some think is like moving somewhere. But one of very interesting things is she told me that they know which kind of family it is because they have different dialects. Hmm. So they kind of figure it out that this, uh, this is the same species, but a bit different dialect than the other ones. I like that it's a, a dialect, not a language or an accent. Yeah. It's that in the middle thing. Yes, exactly. Because I think that's quite interesting and engaging, I think. I was quite uh, interested in, and I, read, I did read a lot about this kind of stuff because I think it's uh, important even though that like in my projects, I do speak mostly about this kind of underwater noise pollutants and our presence there, but also I try to explain why our presence is so disturbing. And this is exactly because of this, you know, how, how and what is happening with all the life, you know. It's interesting because noise pollution, as bad as it is, it's the one kind of pollution where you can just turn it off. Like if it was air pollution or chemicals in the water or anything like that, there's a real problem long term. But for noise pollution, you just flick a switch and it's gone. Is that something that we can actually have some control over and um, make an impact? Definitely. That's absolutely true. But the problem is that uh, most of the our goods and our whatever we consume and whatever we use on a daily basis 
and buying shops and so on is coming from the transport or cargo ships. And uh, transport and cargo ships was inflating in the last 50 years. It was like 150% more boats. And as we speak, you know, like just uh, last week, there was this Suez Canal evergreen boat stock. Yep. And I think you also, like, everybody was following that. <laughs> sure. But now I'm thinking, did it get quiet in the Suez Canal? Definitely. But it was just, like, less traffic. But most of the boats, they had been still running because they had been waiting that they would drive through. So it didn't help. And what it showed, you know, like, uh, how something like this can block everything and which kind of panic it started to happen. And mostly what I was finding out quite odd in sort of this kind of media frenzy was that it was constantly reporting about the billions of dollars of global trade. Exactly. Yeah. You know, and this shows you how very fragile it is and how very important it is also at the same time. Important, you know, because the global economy is kind of like relying on it. So this means that in this case, it's really hard to just switch the motors down. And here's something, you know, like I was actually two years ago, I was like on one very interesting boat, Celtic Explorer. It's like a research boat from the Irish government. I was there as an artist in residency to Galway 2020 and uh, Ariel Sparks project. And it was great to experience that because that was a silent boat. This means that uh, the machinery, the technology, how the boat was put together and where the main machinery and main propellers that have been stationed, it was done differently than other boats. And yes, if we would even drive slower, it's already impacting the levels of the noise pollution, which is present. But still, we will come there. I think there is a long road. And yeah, definitely, like noise pollution is one of the most stupidest pollution. You know, I call it like that, you know, it's like I like to say it's very stupid pollution because, yes, we could just like turn it down because, as you said, like chemical pollutants or microplastics and plastic in general and so on. It's much more harder to get rid of it because it gets intervened into the alignment on the molecular levels, which we don't have even the knowledge how to be able to prevent that. Yeah. yeah. I mean, if you stop putting microplastics into the ocean, the microplastics that are there are still there. But if you stop putting sound into the ocean, it's all gone. That's really interesting. But how do we have any clue how damaging the, the sound is? I think the clue will be soon much more present because, you know, the numbers of fish is drastically disappearing. This means that fisher industry is having lots of problems, you know. So, And then, of course, they go with bigger boats, uh, with bigger nets, deeper, which causes many different levels of problems. But definitely it's changing everything. I always like to explain it that this noise pollution which is happening in the oceans, the sea is the same like in the cities. Okay, in the time when we could sit on a coffee yeah. uh, next to the crowded road, <laughs> you know, like it's very normal that you start to yell to, towards each other, you know, because you have a coffee, but uh, there's lots of cars around you and you start to shout, you know, and this is happening also in the oceans, the seas, the 
communication, which was before on much lower decibels, starts to be louder and louder. And it's called this Lombardo effect. And uh, this is just present, you know. And so the fish are shouting at each other. Exactly. You know, it's like, you know, fish are the same like us. We just like to communicate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's interesting when you say, like, for instance, the, the impact of COVID, which has made cities quieter, at least to a certain extent. I guess it's the same with with waterways. I mean, we were invited to come and do something with uh, Venice Biennale about the sound in the canals because of COVID. The assumption was the canals had become very, very quiet because there were no boats going up and down. But of course, we couldn't go to Venice because of the COVID pandemic. So, so we never, unfortunately, got to do that. But it's really interesting to me that there is this impact that can be had that can go away so quickly. And I mean, do the fish continue to shout when the sound goes away or, you know, has it become naturalized? This I don't know. And this is something which I would like to research further, honestly. Like, it's really hard to, like, in my prediction, I think that the generations, of course, this changes, you know. And then depending how long the lifespan of which organism is, you know, quicker generational gaps can be longer or quicker depending on that. So definitely would be interesting to explore that. And because water waves, yes, maybe on the beginning of COVID, they have been a bit less, but the roots are still happening. You know, there is so many boats out there, and especially because I will go back to Suez. <laughs> because that's just the recent thing which happened. But it was just like interesting to explore I was just like quite amazed to explore how much we don't know about this kind of logistics and how something is coming from somewhere to somewhere else, you know, because uh, I think we are quite unaware of uh, how much we abuse and use the water traffics. True. Because it's not only oceans and rivers, it's also rivers and, you know, so yeah. And of course, different species depend on different senses. I know dogs are really big on smell and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But it's quite dark underwater. I assume, you know, especially when you go down deep, I assume that sound becomes very important. Definitely. Yeah. It's like uh, after 200 meters, we come to this kind of more twilighty area. You can see something, but it's really hard. And then very quickly, you're in darkness. So. Sound is one of the main uh, orientations, you know, like as humans, I like to say that we are visual animals and uh, in water, this changes, you know, so the aquatic organisms, they're more or less very sound and also touch dependent, you know, like to the pressure of the, the environment. And then, of course, there is this world of bioluminescence, but... <laughs> Well, that's all, you know, that's a, an, another topic entirely. And it almost sort of connects with the thing that I've been fascinated about with your work is because, I mean, there are lots of fish and there are lots of uh, aquatic creatures and all the rest of it. And you were drawn to jellyfish for some reason. And I don't know, I mean, they're beautiful, they're, particularly your installations with the jellyfish and, and communicating with them. They're absolutely, particularly when they're lit, they're, they're incredibly beautiful creatures but what was it about them that led you to want to sort of interact with them and and communicate with them essentially okay the with the jellies i was actually started to work when i was also in izmir in turkey and it was just there have been few there is always few 
things by something starts to be happening and so on. So on one hand, I was really fascinated with um, one particular jellyfish uh, species, which is called immortal jellyfish. It's like really tiny one. You can find it in the Mediterranean and near the Japanese shores. And it has this ability to just like shrink back to the polyp stage when the parameters around it are not um, best and can go back to the full adult organism when everything is good around it. And this was very interesting. Wow. And at the same time, there was like a huge jellyfish blooms in February, which was really unusual because, you know, this should happen like a few months later. And this was showing, and this was like full of moon jellyfish. It's like one species, which is like very common species. And they use it also a lot in biology as a model organism. So I could find lots of info about it. And they have also like very interesting regenerative possibilities and so on. So, and when there was like full bay of them, like just like one morning we woke up and they had been there. So... I started to be interested why they came, like what is happening, how come. And yeah, they are very interesting as, a, you know, jellyfish are one of the oldest organisms living in the oceans and seas. You know, they say that they're dating back to 500 million years, which is unimaginable. Wow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, it's really hard to grasp this kind of like long kind of geological information. And more or less unchanged in that state. Yes, exactly. This is very interesting. And then also, you know, like depending how they move, what is happening is like, and how they are done, you know, because they're so foreign to us. You know, they have totally different system of being. So here was something that I was quite uh, intrigued. So one was this like, this immortal jellyfish, which is like quite uh, me. You know, it goes into this theory, theoretical biological immortality, which is something which I like to explore in my arts. And then on the other hand, these creatures, which, yeah, they can be fragile, but they are very, very robust also at the same time. It's quite interesting. And in ecological sense, they predict, you know, they're quite interesting bioindicators, you know, like the bigger the numbers, more of them, then you know that there is some bigger changes also happening. So... Describe your art. What do people encounter? What do they experience when they come across your work? Like, uh, it's depending, you know, we speak about the work which uh, we mentioned now, which is uh, referring to the jellyfish. It's like uh, immersive installations where they try to give you also visual guidance into the bigger research which is done in the backbone also and through the years i see that people do follow that you know not of course it's hard to say how others are perceiving my art what i try to bring to the public is is to present this kind of in-depth interest of mine which i have for this interspecies relationships this means between us and the others, but not only between us and the others, but also what is happening between other species by themselves. And how all of us are kind of like um, coexisting and co-living in the same world and how we are still quite failing in sharing that in the quality ways, I would say. So are you 
communicating science? Are you interpreting it? Are you asking questions about it? Are you creating meaning from it? What's, what is the thing that you do to science when you present it to people through art? What I try to do is, first of all, to ask questions and to communicate it in the sense of like interpretation of the knowledge which I'm able to grasp together with all the collaborators, of course, because, you know, in the bigger projects, you're never alone. There is always lots of um, quite big team of people, which we're all working together towards the presentations and showing the projects. And I also try to, you know, I try to bring it also to some other levels, you know, because, you know, science has his own limitations also as art sometimes, you know, so, and when I, combine it together, I try to bring also some other questions in which they wouldn't be raised because of uh, economy, politics, or some other issues, which they can happen instead of scientific researchers also, because, you know, there are some restrictions also, which they can be put out. And uh, I think that with artistical kind of approaches, we can open up the discussions, which they sometimes wouldn't be perceived as something that is like important, you know. And in my arts, I combine it many times also with citizen science. So next to projects, I'm many times also developing different, more workshopy debate platforms. Because, you know, I think that installations, especially art science, it's a field which is very fascinating for me. And I think uh, it's a field that I feel very comfortable in because I'm very curious also about it. When you say citizen science, do you mean groups of people coming together to contribute to the research? Yes, exactly. Right. right. Um, and also to develop different modalities, you know, like... In 2019, I was working together with a team of Matadero in Madrid, and we have been doing group workshop with 500 people at the River Manzanares. And what I developed was the methodology how to bring 500 people to the river without damaging the river at the same time. Wow. You know, how to navigate that, you know? So it's always a bit of dramaturgy also, like how you perceive the knowledge of somebody and with citizen science what I try to bring out is also to share the knowledge you know in sense of like opening up the science to the wider public so that we can all understand why something is happening and now especially I think in the time post-corona or in between corona or we're not post yet but yeah <laughs> we're quite deep inside of it sure Sorry to, so I think it's very important to be able to understand what kind of, what is the scientific levels, like why do we need to understand what does it mean biodiversity, you know? I think that this was like a lesson in the last year, which we all kind of got to understand that, you know, this interconnection, you know, so what does it mean if we cut the forest out? Yeah. And yeah, why yeah. these animals are coming to us and why these kind of viruses are jumping. And that this was always the case, but just that we started to be too comfortable. Sure. And I guess that relates to climate change. I mean, I was going to ask, does climate change affect underwater communication? But it affects everything. So I guess my question is, how does climate change affect underwater communication? It definitely affects it. You know, it's like uh, more 
traffic there is in the aquatic areas, more changes are happening. At the same time, I was just like recently reading into this uh, deep sea mining, which is quite scary prospect. Because they can't be quiet, can it? Oof, they can't be quiet and they manage to damage like uh, huge areas. Sure. Especially, you know, this kind of like fishing, which when they throw huge fishnets into the sea and drag them, this can be like huge. This is like, uh, I don't know, 20 football fields big, one end. Wow. So this kind of deep sea mining, of course, this machinery and everything, what they plan to use, it's like just like... Massive. And are things like ocean acidity a problem? I mean, does pH level affect sound travel or anything like that? Absolutely. Yeah. More acid it is, more pitchy the sound starts to be, so the sound starts to change. Hmm. So in the long term, I think this could also happen that fish or animals would not understand each other anymore. Like... Um, when I started to research this underwater pollution and when I started to read about it, I came across like Douglas Adams lecture about it. You know, he is like a great writer, but he was actually also working a lot on the biodiversity and understanding that. Sure. So he was with um, biology. Was Mark Howardine was the writer he was with. They did Last Chance to See, I remember, about uh, endangered species. Exactly. And they went, like, I was really struck by when he was explaining why the Jiangxi River dolphins disappeared, you know, because these have been dolphins which they didn't saw nothing, you know, the have river dolphins, so they have been quite blind because the Yangtze River is such a dense river. But then because the, it was also so noisy, they couldn't meet each other anymore because they just couldn't hear each other. So you, right. you don't see and you don't... If you don't see and you don't hear, you don't breed. Yes, and then, you know, you don't have kids <laughs> anymore or, you know, and so on. So that was quite, uh, I think that you can explain in two sentences what is the danger and why this is not good, you know. And uh, yes, acidity, like uh, as you mentioned before, but the changes in the pH are influencing sound very much, you know. It starts to be really pitchy and uncomfortable and it starts to travel differently you know so and all these changes of course are interconnected into bigger system you know so yeah i'm really curious do you eat fish i mean it must be strange to consume something that you can have a conversation with I kind of don't consume so much uh, i'm more like a plant eater <laughs> okay because, uh, yeah, it starts to be weird after some while, you know, when you, especially when you start to develop this kind of different uh, relationships with uh, different species. But it's not that, it's just like, you know, it's, um, when we are the sea, we do, you know, it's a bit different, I would say. It's depending from the environment and, uh, Definitely what I'm kind of encouraging everybody to avoid is this kind of buying stuff from these uh, aquatic farms or, you know, farming in general, industrialization of the meat in general. I think it's like uh, something which can be very dangerous also because, you know, the amount of antibiotics which they are used and different 
stuff. We don't want to have this inside of our body, I think. Sure. So that's from a health perspective. I, I just uh, was wondering about once you start thinking about creatures that are having conversations with each other, you start to think about the sentience behind that and and those sorts of things. So, yeah, no, it's just interesting to me because you talk about sort of uh, trawler fishing and and all these sorts of things. But I guess, you know, sort of from an ecosystem perspective, I guess balance is the the ambition for this. I mean, it's not that you want all ships to suddenly go away, but that we should kind of treat this environment a little bit more carefully. Would that be fair? Definitely. I think the sustainable way of thinking, if the sustainable way of thinking would be actually sustainable, I think it would be very fair and also like ecologically produce meat or farms, which, you know, they're not big, you know, and so on. I don't believe in any extremes are good. I'm just a bit afraid that we went quite far, like we as, you know, consumers, people using this planet in different ways that... uh, the, the ways which we went, they are quite uh, scary. And yeah, health is one of the ways how to explain it because I think, okay, maybe I'm also under the influence of Corona, but uh, it's definitely something where where we can um, see how this kind of stuff is changing, you know? And how something like, you know, small virus can change the common reality of everybody. Yeah, absolutely. Are you a diver? I mean, if you go underwater, is, does it sound the same as dropping some microphones down? Because I haven't been down deep. I've snorkeled. I haven't done deeper diving than that. Does it sound like what you hear when you put microphones down? Like with the diving, I just went a few times because I'm having some more own personal health issues that I can't do it for the long term and so on. But definitely the sound is different because also as a diver or, you know, also when you snorkel, you produce the bubbles, you produce the sound, you have this, like, you can hear something, but with hydrophone, it's like, hydrophones are having this kind of passive receiving of uh, the sounds which they are around them. So it is a bit different, but when I perform and when I show this, um, especially this work, scene, which is like dealing with this underwater noise pollution and stuff, Lots of divers, they tell me that it's exactly how they hear it also. You know, that they perceive it, you know, especially people which they are longer down, you know, like they can tell us how that is perceived, but yeah. I guess after a while you would stop hearing yourself and start hearing other things and that would probably put the the twist on it. Tell me about the Adriatic Garden. That is something that I came across and, and I think requires a little bit of explanation. So Adriatic Garden was one of the reactions of uh, last year's situations, I would say. So together with Gino Šutić from Ur Institute in Dubrovnik, we have been, it has a bit of a history. (laughs) Sure, as most things do. (laughs) Most things do do have that, yeah. So when uh, me and Gino in 2018, we have been like artist in residence at uh, Ars Electronicum. And in our project, which is called Aqua Forensic, we have been looking a lot, especially on the chemical pollutants and presence of them in the oceans and seas and rivers. And we did also some quite interesting uh, researches with uh, in vitro experiments with microorganisms and microalgae to see how these chemicals what is happening on that level. And so with the project, we develop uh, installation where you can 
where the public can get these informations, but also perceive this in quite poetic way to understand that these chemicals, you know, like uh, the pills and everything, but we digest because our bodies are quite wasteful, I would say, you know, in the sandy sense, like they produce lots of waste, not wasteful, but <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. So, you know, when you take the pill, only 20% stays inside of your body. 80% of the pill is like going to the dark water switch and to the rivers and of course ends up in the oceans and sea. So of course this is like through the microorganism then going back to the bigger organisms and sooner or later comes to us back with the... Wait, wait, when you, so what, what you're saying is like if I take an ibuprofen... Yes. 20% of it does its job and 80% of it ends up in the ocean somewhere and, and affects fish, for instance. Something. Yes. Wow. It's, of course, different percentage depending on the different pharmaceuticals. And it's also depending which kind of uh, absorption our body is able to be done. But this was like uh, research we came across with Gino when we have been doing this aquaforensic project. So the project is actually a combination of there is installation. We developed also workshops so people could see direct impact of uh, chemicals on things and also scientific paper, which Gino and his colleagues are publishing, I think, in two years' time because it takes time that this, this goes through. But then last year, because last year, especially in the uh, beginning of the year, I think it was something like this time, the guys from Ars Electronica, Martin Honsink and Crystal Bohr contacted me and Gino and, and we started to talk how they plan to do their program because they have been started to prepare for online presence. Sure. Because it was quite logical that in September it will be really hard to... Not everyone's going to Linz. No, and it's also, it's uh, especially, I think... What they did very good, like what I have to say that our team did very good when they had been thinking was, yes, not everybody's able even to come there. And if you do international festival, which tries to involve people not only from the same continent, but different continents, it's really hard to push people to travel in this kind of very hard, harsh uh, and unknown uh, situations. So they started to develop this kind of online uh, gardens, how they call them, like different points. And with Gino, we proposed at that moment to start to work on this kind of uh, Adriatic garden. Because I live in Ljubljana, but uh, I'm one hour drive away from the Slovenian coast, Koper, and I collaborate there with Pina organization a lot. And Gino is uh, living and working mostly in Dubrovnik. So we decided to have like two points at the Adriatic coast and start to open this kind of discussions of, yes, what is happening with this kind of water bodies, how we can prevent them. And we did like, uh, there have been exhibitions, like in Dubrovnik, Gene organized a group exhibition, which was part of this Ars Electronica event. Both on the both points, we had like workshops. Uh, we organized also roundtable debate with different organizations, institutions, like with the aquariums and with the institutes and so on, and also artists to debate, you know, what is the, you know, how to connect, what would be needed to be done, you know, and which kind of 
organizational ways we would need at and then, of course, because I'm working as a sound artist, I invited also other sound artists to present. And it was some kind of like podcasty version of it, of a sound exhibition of under and above water of Adriatics. And I think those like seven works which they have been presented. And um, because I think it's like quite a challenge to rethink also all these kind of new ways how we can show things online. But then because there is lots of stuff also happening, I think that especially podcasts and with listening, you can also be a bit less involved on, I think that visual is sometimes overrated. I'm <laughs> <laughs> 100% with you there. Yeah, as someone who's short-sighted and colorblind and loves a microphone, I, I know exactly what you're talking about. You record a lot of sound underwater and you don't just sort of use that sound recording. You make compositions out of it what does that sound like how do you do it and where can people hear it yes and yes <laughs> i do record it a lot and i do work on compositions so i try to record on di- like i would say it like i come to some locations i i, I do different levels of uh, recordings you know depending of the length of my hydrophone is the limitation here but because the water is like so, uh, such an interesting material and it sound travels so wide and far, you know, it's quite good. You know, you can get quite a lot from specific locations. So then I kind of condense these compositions when I'm like, one thing is like, you know, as a field recording, when you listen from the beginning to the end, is one situation, but in compositions, I try to mix these different vibes of different day. And my intent is always, you know, to present the, you know, to present what was present, but then also to bring out all these kinds of anxieties, which we are also bringing towards the animals. So in some compositions, this is stronger, in some less strong, you know, and then it's always a bit mixture also with bioacoustics. But it gives this idea about how we perceive and what we perceive there, but also to help to the public to understand that there is so many vivid and different sounds there, that it sounds sometimes, you know, especially like some reefs, you know, or um, there's lots of corals and so on. There's also lots of other organisms mostly, and these are areas which they're very talkative, you know, very chatty, you know, I would say, you know, there is lots of um, chit-chat happening and shrimps, for instance, you know. Yeah, like the snapping sounds, right? Yes, yes, yes. Do you Um, have to see that they're there before you drop the mic down or you just drop and hope? Uh, sometimes I drop and hope mm-hmm. and if I'm lucky and if I have good, uh, local guides, they can tell you where there is some more animals, which they, you can encounter or not, you know? Sure. So it's, uh, always combination is not because this is quite artistic research. I call it, you know, it's not like uh, scientific in the sense. And that's why I like to invite always different scientists to talk with me because they can present what they find on their daily basis. And this is more like a sound imprint of the environment, I would say. Okay. Well, this is a a very self-interested question. I have two nine meter hydrophones 
some lakes, the Gulf of Bothnia, which leads obviously into the, uh, the Baltic Sea, a big river and a small river. What would you do first? What I would go first to record? Yeah. Or what would you do? Definitely, I would be interested. Like, there is a lake also, you said. Yeah, there's multiple lakes. Mm. Lakes can be interesting, especially where the water comes into the lake and goes out, but then also the middle of the lake. I would go to try to get that on different levels. And then also to, you know, because the streams, like the rivers, they mostly they have some flow, you know. So And when there is a movement, you can hear that. Yeah, so definitely I will try out lakes, record some of the rivers, of course, also, but then go to the sea and try to record it near to the rivers, you know, when the rivers are coming into, like, by the deltas of the rivers, and then also go a bit further down to see how this is mixing. Because, you know, I've, for me, it's always interesting to figure it out which kind of animals are living where, you know? Okay. And what is there, you know, because... Uh, yeah, which kind of species is around. Interesting. Fantastic. Robertina, mm -hmm. it's been really fascinating. I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much for doing this. Yeah, the same. And thank you for inviting me and uh, hope to see you soon. Huh? Yeah, look forward to it. That's Robertina Shebjanich, and that's the MTF Podcast. You can find Robertina's work at robertina.net. I'm Dubba, at Dubba on Twitter, and MTF Labs is at MTF Labs, and on the web at mtflabs.net. Thanks as always to the team, Sergio Castillo, Mars Starton, Jen Kukuchka, and Run Dreamer, and to Airtone and cellist Romy Koppelman for the music. Thanks to you all for listening. You have a great week, and we'll talk soon. Cheers. Thank you.